This week on Cinemaholics, it was the greatest party that never happened. We review the dueling documentaries covering the infamous failure that was the Fire Festival. If you watch nothing from these documentaries except this one thing, I, I would highly recommend checking it out. Plus, it's that time of year again when we obsess over the most prestigious film awards event you're probably not watching. We talk about the Oscar nominations for 2019 and offer our own personal selections. I, I, seeing that just kind of like made me just shake my head in shame for this entire enterprise. All that and more is coming up on Cinemaholics. Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. He is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend. He also reviews films for The Playlist, Cuntprint Film, and many more. It is Will Ashton. Hello. And I'm the author of the novel Killer Joy, a book about Pixar called Pixar Theory. I write about film for Adam Insider, Relevant Magazine, and The Young Folks. I am John Negroni. You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics on adamtickets.com. You can write into the show anytime by emailing us at cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. And you can support us directly by becoming one of our monthly patrons on patreon.com slash cinemaholics. We recommend it. Will Ashen, we mm-hmm. we have a lot to get to this episode. Lots of reviews. Yeah. We're talking about the Oscars. It's good stuff. And we, we don't even say in the intro everything we're going to be reviewing. So there are some, uh-huh. su- some surprises. I'm excited. Yeah. Well, first, let's get into some off topics before we dive into the main review. So we should mention we did a patron poll. We asked you, our Patreon supporters, to help us decide which films to talk about. For a while, it was a three-way tie between Fire, Serenity, and Polar. But eventually, Serenity did win out. And we already talked about this film, a special guest, Charlie Ridgely. That is our last call, which is up right now in your podcast feed. We did a drunk episode of Cinemaholics. It was a blast. I had so much fun. Having, having a few. Uh, we didn't drink rum like in Serenity, but that, that is a crazy movie. No. Have you recovered from that conversation? Uh, physically, no. Uh, mentally, <laughs> uh, also no. Right. So this is the this is the hangover episode, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Very fun. But yeah, so our Serenity last call is out. We did a spoiler-free review, but then we also talked spoilers. So it was fun to do that. It, it is the type of movie. There's no way we could have done Serenity in the main show. It just would not have lived up to expectations, honestly. So we're doing the fire documentaries instead for the main show. And I think that was a good call because we have a lot to talk about in that regard. We should say too, next week is when I'm going to be at Sundance. The Sundance Film Festival is going on right now. And our next episode is going to be kind of some, it's going to be unlike anything we've done before, because I I still don't know, well, exactly what I'm going to be doing. If I'm going to be recording live from the festival, or if we're, if I'm going to be phoning in and talking about some of the films coming out. So it's, it's going to be a, you'll see what happens when it happens kind of week, I guess, for the listeners. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm very curious to see what's going to happen, but I am excited no matter what to hear what's going on. Cause it sounds like even though it just started, I think a couple of days ago, um, it sounds like there's already some headline grabbing films at the festival at the moment. So I'm mm-hmm. excited to see what you get the ch- chance to check out. Yeah. 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 I, there are a few, I already know that I'm definitely going to see, I think I'm going to be seeing 12 movies for, with a course of about oh, wow. four or five days. So that should be fun. But mm-hmm. there, there are a lot that I'm not going to catch. So hopefully we can hear from some other Sundance people on some of the films coming out that are getting the most buzz. We'll see what happens. But also, we have a really cool announcement. We have made a Cinemaholics website. 
Now we're not going to reveal what the URL is. It's still not ready yet. We're still finishing up the design and archiving all of the old episodes so that when you go to this website, it's going to have all the latest stuff, but it is going to be a website devoted just to Cinemaholics. We're planning on some cool stuff on there where you can find all the latest episodes. You can find more stuff from me and Will, and it's going to be hopefully a pretty organized way to dive into everything that, you know, (laughs) Cinemaholics. One stop shop for all yeah. things in Mahalics. We're still working on merch. I know, Will, you really want to do shot glasses. Yeah, I if do. We do yes, that, I really that, that, would, that would be the place to do it, right? Exactly, yeah. I was uh, telling John, I want little shot glasses with the logo on it. I think and you just want shot shots. glasses in general. Yeah, shots. But I think it's perfect because like, we're a movie podcast. You have to have shots with shots. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it prints money. <laughs> That's right. And uh, it, one of the cool things about it too is that you'll also be able to find Anyway, That's All I Got episodes. And we've also linked to It Ain't Ogre Till It's Ogre, your other podcast, Will Ashton. And I mm-hmm. think you have an announcement related to that. Yeah, I just wanted everyone to know that season three, the premiere episode is out. Uh, the season is going to be devoted entirely to the 2004 film Garfield the Movie with uh, Brecken Meyer and uh, what's it, Bill Murray and Jennifer Love Hewitt and Stephen Tobolowski and all that jazz. So I think the first episode's really fun. I hope everyone checks it out if you're interested. And uh, we have 11 more in store, so look out. In case you have forgotten or never heard in the first place, Any No Girl Tells Ogre is a monthly podcast. So always looking forward to seeing those in my podcast feed. I, I didn't <laughs> love The Cat in the Hat, so I, I'm much more interested in Garfield the movie. That, that is a film that I, I'm very curious to see how that is going to deteriorate you as a person, Will Ashton, watching okay. that every single month for a year, right? Yeah, that's the plan. All right. Well, that's Inane Ogre Tilt Ogre. Let's move on to our main reviews. We're doing sort of two reviews for The Price of One this week. Two documentaries mm-hmm. about the same subject came out earlier this month. I think it was about mid-January. You may remember The Fire Festival, which was a spectacular failure in 2017. Yeah. And that's probably putting it mildly. Many call it a fraud, a scam. Many others call it a deserved reckoning for entitled millennials. Millennials are always the the butt of the joke. Whatever the case, for a few weeks, just a couple of years ago, the internet was obsessed with poking fun at how badly, terribly, this music festival flamed out under the vision of hip-hop mogul Ja Rule and New York tech bro Billy McFarland. Well, do you remember all of this drama as it was happening back in 2017? I think fittingly enough, I remember the follow happening like on Twitter. I remember it was trending pretty heavily, like for like a week or something. I was like, "What's Fire Festival?" And I remember pretty like the most iconic thing was that that image of the the cheese sandwich, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, <laughs> with with like uh, like a couple uh, pieces of lettuce thrown on the side, and like a um, what do you call those things? Uh, like a cardboard uh, container that was supposed yeah. to be like a a grade uh, cuisine. There, there yeah, are people. Was, there are people who paid like hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to this festival. Like, I think the bare minimum was like twenty five thousand dollars to go to this. Yeah. Not not counting airfare and things like that. I think. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize until I was watching a documentary that was supposed to be two weekends. I thought it was just one. Yeah. Same uh, here. So yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know what. The, yeah, I really don't know. Like among other things, like what they were planning to do for that whole week in between <laughs> the festivals. It's just so many questions that can be raised about this, this yeah. stupid festival. Now I I don't remember much of this. Like I I was definitely all like extremely on Twitter in 2017, and so it's very strange that 
I, I don't remember this that much. I, I remember the festival itself and I remember that it was like a failure or whatever, but I, I don't remember seeing like the cheese sandwich or the tents or anything like that. So for me, watching these documentaries was pretty eye-opening because I didn't know most of these details at all. Like I barely heard of this, except like you, I remember seeing it on trending and that was about it. But so there are two documentaries, like I said, one that came out on Netflix and one that came out on Hulu. The Netflix one is called Fire, the Greatest Party That Never Happened. The interesting thing about that one is that it was produced by Jerry Media, which is the company that kind of you know worked with the festival. So it's very much like the insider documentary. It goes, takes you through what the employees were going through in the lead up. It's, it's very linear in that way. The Hulu one is called Fire Fraud, and it's more of an outsider perspective where they interview Billy McFarland himself, the scam artist, we should call him. And mm-hmm. it's it really is like much more people were interviewed and it was definitely a more contextual film. It kind of really dives into why this festival happened. So I, I want to say just the existence of these coinciding documentaries is, in my opinion, just fascinating because it really shows mm-hmm. and proves the individuality of documentary filmmaking that the same event can be made into two such completely different depictions because they both largely use a lot of the same video and audio and even some of the same interviews with the same people. And at this, you're getting two completely different things. And it proves that the same event through different perspectives can just be result in a totally different film. And I'm going to say that in my opinion, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, neither documentary really works all that well without seeing the other one. They feel like to me, two halves of the same story and they both come bungled with their own compromises in terms of ethical filmmaking, which uh, mm-hmm. we'll get into. But first we want to give just a taste of what this film tackles here is a short clip from fire the greatest party that ever happened which is the netflix film i started talking to billy and from the get-go it was you know we're all running around scrambling every day to find new houses we need help from you guys start to cut people these people aren't paying for the experience tell them not to come and it was a constant battle because what they cared most about was the influencers so I'm imploring them to cancel paying guests at this point. You know, they're not going to have a place to stay. And the response from Billy was, we're not a problems-focused group. We're a solutions-oriented group. We need to have a positive attitude about this. We need to have a good attitude. And he was unflappable, but he was also entirely delusional. So it was this constant battle in, in my mind between, is this guy a genius or is he a madman? Because he just would not take no for an answer. And he would not take advice. And where do you... He's a liar. All right. That is from Fire, the greatest party that never happened, which is now on Netflix. So I want to hear from you, Will, because I think that everyone sort of watches these in different orders. So what order did you see these documentaries in? Which one did you see first? I saw the Hulu one first because that one technically premiered uh, before the Netflix one. But I knew about the Netflix one for a while or like for a couple months beforehand. But I I do appreciate that uh, Hulu really kind of leveled uh, Netflix in that they the day that the Netflix review, like the the one for Netflix, the reviews were coming out from critics. Mm -hmm. uh, They were just like, oh, you want to watch a fire documentary? Oh, here you can watch this one like (laughs) almost a week before. And then they call out the other one at the end of the film, which I thought, yeah. you know, I gotta give them props for that. You know, that's that's a uh, that's a baller move. That's why I um, call them dueling like documentaries. <laughs> yeah, 
it's weird, yeah, because like you, they kind of have this reception that like they're kind of at odds with each other. But like you said, I feel like the picture you get a fuller perspective from watching both of them. They do complement each other in many ways. But um, yeah, I, I had more anticipation, I think, for the Netflix one. But but since the Hulu one came out first, I watched that one first. That's interesting. I I saw the Netflix one first, and I'm really glad I did yeah. because I think as someone who I never really looked into the event itself. I think the Netflix one is, in my opinion, a really good one to dive into if you aren't as familiar with everything that happened. If you were obsessed with all the Twitter stuff, I think maybe the Hulu one is a good one to start with because it is it there's it's it adds to the existing information, probably. It goes a lot yeah. into Billy uh, McFarland's past with Magnesis, which the Netflix one doesn't really do. You were gonna yeah, say? I was going to say, I feel like no, I was just going to say, you are planning to watch both of them, and you haven't already. I would definitely start with the Netflix one, because I think not only do you, does it give, like, I think it's it's easier to enjoy if you watch it first, mm-hmm. because if they think if you watch it after the um, Hulu one, it kind of feels like it's repeating a lot of the same stuff, but um, I also think that that one kind of, like, eases you into, like, what it is, and then the the Hulu one kind of gives you a bigger perspective if you want, like, a fuller story of what happened. Yeah, and that's not to say I, there are things about the Hulu one that infuriate me, but what I appreciate about the Netflix one, since we're on that, is that, like I was saying before, it's so linear and it does a pretty good job. It really like builds up to the festival being the failure that it is because you see it from the employees' perspectives. You, you see how they're sort of like, this isn't going to work. They, you know, according to them, they're like, this is not going to work, but no one's listening to us. And then it culminates, like the climax of the film is what happens. And I think that it's a a pretty great structure because the payoff is great. But then the Hulu one kind of starts with the presupposition that you know how bad it gets because it kind of breezes through all of the crazy stuff in the very beginning. And then it takes you back and then it kind of walks you through the whole thing, but it keeps going back and forth and like, timelines. And I could see that maybe being a little confusing for some people, especially because since it's a Hulu movie, they apparently were able to use like a lot of clips from other shows to sort of complement footage. So like there's so much parks and recreation, for example, in the Hulu one, which I thought was interesting. I I liked a lot of the comparisons, but I wondered, you know, if, if it might lose some people, but then the Hulu one, and maybe, I don't know if you'll agree or disagree with this, I think has just a flashier cinematography. Like there are things that they do that are a little bit more interesting, you know, whereas like the Netflix one is very straightforward. Matter of fact, interview footage, interview footage, the Hulu one is like, you know, freeze frame into a picture, really diving into like Instagram influencer, millennial culture. And this, the filmmaking actually matches that in style. And the Hulu one is like a more, Mm. I think it's filmier, I guess. What do you think? Well, I felt that the Netflix one was a little more more polished. Like it felt like they might have thrown a little bit more money into like the actual production of it. But I agree with you that in terms of being a little more creative in the style, I felt the Hulu one was a little more interesting in that regard. Yeah, I would say so. But I I can't. Do you, do you think one is better than the other? Because I really can't. I, I think that they um, both have pretty glaring issues that sort of cancel each other out. Overall, and maybe it's just because I saw it first, I think I enjoyed the Hulu one more. And that was maybe because I was getting the facts first for that one. And I just kind of was like fully enraptured with it. I also, I don't know, people who say that the um, Netflix one is funnier, but I actually thought the Hulu one was a little funnier than the Netflix one. Like the Netflix mm-hmm. one is actually sadder and a little more. It is uh, sad. 
but the Netflix one has Netflix has the best, best yeah. thing <laughs> story, <laughs> which the best which, story, yes. Yes, there is a story from one of the one of the guys, older gentleman, who was basically had to convince the customs agent to let them bring in a bunch of water. And Billy McFarland tells him that he has to go suck this dude's genitals to make it happen. And the way he tells the story is just it, it stopped me in my tracks, Bill Ashton. <laughs> I was just like, No, me too. Yeah. Was- what in the world? What one of the craziest movie moments of 2019 so far, if, if not you know, in the last, you know, year and a half, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. It felt like the first like major movie moment of 2019 was this anecdote. Yeah. It's going to be a, if you, if you watch nothing from these documentaries, except this one thing, I I would highly recommend checking it out on YouTube at the very least. I'm sure it's on there by now. Yeah. It's on YouTube. I found it. And I actually, you know, you, you asked me, it's like, why don't we play that clip (laughs) in the show? But I'd rather people actually watch it because it, it is something that you really have to see it to believe it. So, so I mentioned that there are some kind of ethical boundaries that the documentaries cross. And, you know, I think it's worth mentioning, I, especially with fire fraud. When, when you watch, when you watch both films, the, the big takeaway is that this guy, Billy McFarland is a horrible, horrible human being, an impulsive scam artist who breaks the law constantly. He's in jail right now. And even in jail, he's scamming people. What I like about the Netflix one in particular is that they actually show him scamming people after the festival, after he gets caught with all of this stuff. It's not ambiguous about like what this guy was doing, I guess. And one of the things though, that fire fraud, the Hulu one that really throws me off is that they paid this guy hundreds of thousands of dollars to do an interview. And on the one hand, it is interesting to watch Billy kind of squirm and and be just as despicable as he truly is on camera as he's being asked these questions and is like trying to deflect. But at the same time, I just can't get it out of my head that he made all of this money when like, especially in the Netflix one, one of the best things about the Netflix one is that they really show you the damage this did to the people in Great Exuma. We didn't really mention this, but the music festival was happening on in the Bahamas and they basically just wrecked the infrastructure and they they didn't pay these all of these day laborers hundreds of thousands of dollars for all of this labor that they did and they put all of these people in danger because you know the people who didn't get paid were threatening with violence and one woman you know is giving an interview about how she had to give all away her savings just to you know pay off these people to stay safe and for the people who deserved the money and that still wasn't enough to cover it she since had a GoFundMe actually where people have raised money say, to yeah. help compensate her. And that, yeah, one of the silver linings of this entire thing and throughout all of this stuff, throughout everything, Billy McFarland's like living in a penthouse, making money off of cheating people off of money even further, which is detailed in the Netflix one. And I, I don't know the, something about this movie. They were like, well, well, we'll give him even more money just so that we can film him, try to defend himself. That, that to me, that made me pretty angry. I, I don't know what you think. Yeah, I mean, I, I like you said, I think they're both biased. That's certainly a thing that hinders the Hulu one. But I also think uh, having Jerry Media involved so heavily with the the um, Netflix one is pretty equally as infuriating for me because they're they, they they able don't to work their image. Right, and they are able to work their image and be like, oh, you know, like we didn't do anything wrong. We're, I like that the Hulu one, like obviously Billy is like the most – 
criminal of this thing, but the Hulu one is like, you know, like it, there's blame to be thrown all around the place. Like right. it's not just one person who can like be blamed entirely for this fiasco. So I do, that's one thing I do appreciate, I think about the Hulu one over the Netflix one. Well, I will say yeah too, because in the Hulu one, a former employee of Jerry Media definitely has a lot to say about their involvement and their complicity in a lot of what happened, especially with like, there's this conversation to be had about the social media influencers who helped, you know, raise the spotlight on fire being Mm -hmm. an event that people would pay to go see. Like they, they accepted a ton of money to advertise for a festival that they had no idea if it was actually going to work out. So now there's this interesting debate going on over whether or not they should be held responsible in some way, you know, and, and on one side you're like, well, you know, you can't really blame, they didn't know, they didn't know that this festival, they, they didn't know that Ja Rule was like, they didn't know what they were doing and that the scam was going on. But at the other hand, they accepted money, that amount of money to advertise something that they really had no idea if it was actually going to pay off, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. where the debate is going on. I think it's a good one. And, and one thing I'll say about the Netflix one, I would be more sympathetic with it if they had just been more upfront about everything. Like they, they're not upfront about who the people they're interviewing being producers of the film. They, they don't, they're not upfront about how sort of bi- the bias that is there, which, you know, that's fine. I'm interested in a documentary from their perspective because yeah, they're going to be biased. They're going to sort of like shift blame and do all of that stuff. But if you know it going in, I think it's less of an issue. You can sort of decide for yourself, right? But the fact that they don't and they're, they kind of hide it to a lot of extent, that that's what really irked me. And so it almost irked me about as equally as Fire Fraud putting all of this money and basically rewarding the perpetrators of the scam itself. And so like it to me, they almost sort of cancel out, I guess. I guess. I just feel like having seen the Netflix one after the Hulu one, it just felt like the Netflix version was impartial or felt like it was like not. I mean, you, you certainly I think it's very good about getting the aftermath stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that's. Yeah. Like the best uh, thing about the Netflix one is, like you're saying, hearing like the devastation that happened, and now thankfully that people are using GoFundMe to provide for these people who were completely ripped off and uh, used by uh, Billy and this whole festival. But uh, I just feel like having seen both films, like if you're only going to watch one and get an idea of what happened, I would ultimately recommend the Hulu one because I feel like it covers more ground and it's not quite as neat and professional as the Netflix one, but I just felt like I got more information. I got a better understanding of how this came to be and what went down. I I almost agree with you. You're making really great points. And I want to say the same thing, but yeah, there are certain things in the Netflix one that I think are really important too. I think especially with like how this impacted the fire media employees and the fact that they really like talked to them a lot more and how they were kept in the dark with a lot of this stuff. And really like, just like you said, the aftermath and how that the Netflix one does a better job of really showing you just the devastation in this guy's wake. And so I think we can both agree that seeing both documentaries is probably preferable because you do get that fuller picture, but Mm -hmm. And, and also the guy that we played in the clip, I forget his name, but, you know, I looked into this and he, he like, it's true. Like he wrote these emails and he tried really hard to like warn people and get this thing canceled. And he's not in the other documentary as far as I remember. And so I, I don't think so. No. Right. And I think that, that that was a pretty fair depiction, I think, because like in that case, like it was it was interesting to get his perspective as somebody who was in the event and saw everything happening and tried. 
and you can sort of wonder like who was the there's a a mole apparently mm-hmm. who's like leaking a lot of this information and and it it, it is a little it's tricky. It's tricky to parse out everything with this festival. I think the bottom line is that this was just a calamity. You know, I think that it's more depressing Mm -hmm. than it is funny. You know, they, they spend some time in the Hulu one, especially diving into the social media reaction, which I think is far less interesting than the event itself, which is probably why I somewhat prefer the Netflix one because in the Hulu one, it really just feels like millennials are such a punching bag and there are all these like sweeping statements about uh, millennials just want to not have to deal with how horrible the political realities are for them. And I'm like, well, these aren't millennials in the very general population sense. These are the very rich Instagram influencer millennials who can afford to go to this yeah. festival. And because that documentary spends more time diving into, you know, how terrible it was for them before and after, I'm like, well, that to me is like a weird message, I guess. Like it doesn't really jive with me as well. I don't know. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I do. Like I said, I mean, it's not quite as neat and compact as the Netflix one as far as its presentation was trying to say. I just feel like, I, I mean, like you said, though, I mean, I don't think it's just attacking millennials in general. I think it's attacking a very specific millennial, like a kind that gets influenced into this and has a lot of money to go spend yeah. like $25,000 to see Blink-182 on an island. Like that's who they're criticizing. But yeah, I mean, there is like a meanness, maybe a cynical angle to the Hulu one that uh, can rub people the wrong way. I can understand that. But I don't know. I think it's kind of fitting for this whole thing. Like I think you kind of need an edge like that to cover the story. That that basically covers, I think, our final thoughts. My, my grades are the same for both documentaries. I think they're both about a B minus you know, kind of a higher B minus. I, I don't think that they're outstanding documentaries. I don't think they reveal all that much, but I do think that they're efficient and pretty decent and worth checking out. It's just, if if there was one documentary with all of this information and without all of the, in my opinion, like ethical compromises, these would be like pretty high up for me. You know, B plus documentaries, maybe higher, but th- those shortcomings, I, I taking them into account, it's about a B minus for both. What about you? Yeah, um, I think after watching Fire Fraud, I was kind of leaning closer to a B, but like you were saying, I think knowing that Billy profited off the film and that the film is like basically giving him money uh, definitely kind of hinders it. And ultimately, I think having seen both films, like they both are about the same. So uh, quality-wise, I think they're both about, like you said, like a B minus ultimately. And I want to be clear, like I don't think that you know, him profiting off the documentary. I don't think that necessarily affects the quality because it's trickier with documentary films. Documentaries, they're not like movie movies where, you know, the quality is probably mostly everything. But in this case, it's like how I, I grade documentaries by like how useful they are for society. And so that does kind of paint my criticisms. And before people get mad at us, you know, for knocking it down a little bit because they paid Billy McFarlane, I'll just say, you know, like we're not giving this movie like an F and citing that as the reason. It's just something that brings it down a bit, I guess, for both of us. So for me, I'd say, like I said before, I mean, if you are only going to watch one, I'd say the fire fraud one is a little more informative and investigative. And ultimately I was a little more engaged with that one than I felt, but I would say watch both. Like you said, I think you're going to get a better understanding of what went down. And I think they're both worth watching ultimately. Yeah. I have a tougher time recommending one or the other. So we'll take that and run with it. 
let's let's move on to a couple of the reviews we have for this week. You and I have been watching a lot. Uh, we weren't mm. able to cover everything that we've seen recently last week, so we're kind of catching up a bit. Well, let's let's start things off with what you've been watching. You know, there there was something another Netflix thing that has come out a series. What what is it called, and what's it about? Uh, yeah, it's a trigger warning with Killer Mike, which is a terrible title. Um, but thankfully the show is much better. Um, I'm a big fan of Killer Mike, um, especially his work with, uh, Run the Jewels with LP. Um, I've been following him for a while. I think he's, uh, you know, very politically active. I think he's a good speaker. I think he is very thoughtful and engaged in what he's trying to do and how he communicates his voice. And I was really excited for this show and I was not disappointed. I think it's a very entertaining little, uh, I guess it's technically a documentary, but it's, mm, it's like yeah, it's a social commentary comedy in some ways. But yeah, it's six episodes, all a half an hour, actually a little bit under, I believe. Um, and they have Killer Mike basically trying to fix America one way or another, or just kind of healing the divide, as it were, in his own particular way. So the first episode, uh, it's I'd say the first episode is probably the weakest of all of them, just because it's still kind of figuring out its balance of political commentary and comedy, where he is... Uh, only giving money to the black community for three days leading up to his uh, Georgia concert. Mm. Um, but the second episode, uh, titled F School, I can't say it in full, but that's probably my absolute favorite, where he starts it off by um, going into the public education field and trying to fix the problems with that, but ultimately finds him going into the uh, porn industry to teach uh, adults how to do kind of uh, – different jobs in uh, different fields. And I won't give away too much more than that because I really think it's worth checking out if you only watch one episode. But yeah, uh, overall, the the series kind of touches on a lot of different things. And there's actually a bit of a narrative that forms uh, by the last like five or six episodes. So I would definitely recommend it in full. It's a pretty easy, breezy watch. Um, I would say if I had to give it a grade, probably a B. Just because I don't think it's amazing, but I am looking forward to seeing if there's going to be a second season because I'm a big fan of Killer Mike. I think he succeeds in what he's trying to do here, and I had a lot of fun watching it. So that's my kind of short and quick review of Trigger Warning with Killer Mike. Yeah, I I only have one question. I know that some of the producers of this alongside Killer Mike are like Adult Swim and South Park dudes. So do you feel like, did this feel like an adult swim kind of thing or did it feel more apart? Like it's a strictly like a Netflix docu-series kind of thing. Well, I was listening to an interview with Killer Mike and I think it was initially an FX production, but he said that that it it wasn't quite working out the way he wanted it to there. So I guess Netflix gave him a little more creative freedom to make the show what he wanted it to be. So I had never heard anything about uh, Adult Swim being involved directly, but I guess kind of. I mean, it does have kind of like an in-your-face comedic style that uh, can be a little bit similar to something you'd see on Comedy Central or yeah. Adult Swim. But I'd say it's uh, it's pretty much its own thing. It's not quite that type of comedy. All right. So that's Trigger Warning with Killer Mike. You give it a B. And then you had another review, uh, a film from 2018 that neither of us was able to catch. It's called Destroyer. It premiered at Tell You Ride, and it's now kind of in like a very limited release. It's not making a lot of money, 
But this is from Annapurna Pictures, which we're going to talk more about probably in our Oscar nominations. Not that this was nominated for anything, but Annapurna Mm -hmm. has some uh, drama of its own in that regard. But yeah, I was looking forward to Destroyer, and I've been wanting to see it, mainly because Tatiana Slani is in it. Um, Obviously, I want to see this because Nicole Kidman is in it as well, and Karen Kusama, who you know has made some pretty pretty interesting films in my opinion i was a a lone defender of jennifer's body over the years but anyway what what's what's destroyer about and uh, did you enjoy this one well you're not alone right with jennifer's body it's kind of had a cult following not anymore since, yeah right? but it i felt alone when that film came out sure i mean when it came out yeah it did not get good reviews and it was kind of dismissed as uh, a lesser film by diablo cody but now it's kind of gotten a warmer more uh accepting critical response but yeah yeah so destroyer um like you said nicole kidman plays a detective who's kind of uh reintroduced to this traumatic traumatic event that happened earlier in her life when some people from her past kind of come back into her life and she has to deal with that and also her troubled relationship with her 16 year old daughter but uh yeah no i was looking forward to it as well mainly because i was a big fan of karen kusama's last film the invitation uh, which I think is on Netflix now if you want to check it yeah, out. It's, it's a solid it. film, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I will say that as far as the direction is concerned, I mean, it, it looks beautiful. It's shot very well. Um, I, I definitely like that uh, Kusama is like definitely leaning into like the gritty angle and like not taking any prisoners, just really kind of making this movie the way she wanted to make it. But I think there's too many shortcomings with the script, which uh, I believe was written by Phil Hay and Matt... Uh, Manfredi, 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 yeah, uh, yeah. It just feels kind of stock, like kind of your typical by the books procedural type of script, and they tell it in a way that's kind of playing with um, the timeline. But I don't think how they use the timeline is that effective. Like the way they reveal things feels like they should have told that earlier if they really wanted to make this more effective. And mm-hmm. ultimately, I do think there's a lot to admire here. I would say Tatiana Maslini, her performance, like I didn't even realize I was her as I was watching the movie. She really disappears into the role. Um, and I think they're trying to do the same with Nicole Kidman. She's pretty good in this as yeah. well. Um, but it never, it definitely felt more like she was giving a performance this film. I never, I never was able to separate uh, Nicole Kidman from this character in the same way that I was with uh, Tatiana. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's a cool score in here. Like, there's some stuff to admire, but I just don't think it comes together as well as I was hoping it would. And that's a shame because I was, like I said, I was looking forward to it. I think there's some strong stuff in here, but ultimately I just kind of, kind of ho-hum in uh, a way that I was not anticipating. So I gave it a C plus. It's not terrible. I mean, it's worth checking out. And I know a lot of people have liked it a good bit, but for me, it fell a little short. Yeah, it's been nominated for a few awards. I think it was nominated for a Golden Globe. It's, it's won a couple smaller ones. But I was going to say, you mentioned Phil Hay as the screenwriter. He's actually, I don't know if you said this, but he's married to Karen Kusama. Oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. And so he's one of the writers on this. And he did. they did The Invitation together, I think was their last project. Oh, okay. he, he was a screenwriter for the ride-along films. I know he did Clash of the Titans. He did the screenplay mm-hmm. and the story for that Ryan Reynolds film with Jeff Bridges. Do you remember that? It was like from six years ago. Yes. That one. Uh, he did that one as well. And I think another one he did with Karen Kusama was Aeon Flux. Right. Um, so yeah, about 15 years ago. So very, very weird filmography between the two of them. Yeah. Yeah. The imitation is a really solid script. 
So I'm kind of surprised yeah. it's same. It's a good thriller. And I, yeah, it didn't get seen a lot, I remember, in theaters. It was one of those things that I remember seeing video on demand, but uh, definitely enjoyed it. Destroyer has a 73% on Rotten Tomatoes as of now. And I guess, I guess with the mixed reviews, I guess people are really liking this one mainly for the Nicole Kidman performance. So it might be worth checking out if that's what you are, you know, if that's what you want to get out of this. But that's Destroyer. I have a couple of things that I've seen lately. I want to start by saying I saw Lego Movie, the second part. So it's it's actually called the Lego Movie 2, the second part, or Lego 2. I don't know. It, the, the, the title of the film is all over the place for me. But I, I do want to briefly mention it. We're going to actually review it later. So I'm just going to bring up, I did see it. I'm someone who I really liked the first Lego movie. I didn't love it. I, I remember people really liked hmm. that one. And yeah, I did. Yeah, and I I was also kind of bummed out it didn't get nominated for Best Animated Feature. I don't know if it would have mm-hmm. been my pick, but because I, I liked Big Hero Six more, but I hmm. think I know I, I know a lot of people really like Lego Movie, but I gotta say like the only thing I really remember much from the first one are the like real life scenes with like Will Ferrell and his son, and so I'll say like with Lego Movie Two, I think I like it quite a bit more than the first one, and that's probably not going to be a popular opinion. Because I think a lot of people are going to be going into this for like the surprise factor. But one of the things that I like about the sequel is that it dives into that stuff a bit more. And it, it the message is really good. Like It's just a really good like movie about getting along with your siblings and about playtime and all the stuff that I, I thought was really warm and charming. And it's a, it's a good time in the theater. We're going to talk more about it on February 8th. And I'll, you know, I'll give my grades out then and all of that. But a couple of things that I've been watching, I have two TV series, one on Netflix, they're both on streaming services. One's on Netflix and one is on, well, I'll get to it actually. The first one is Sex Education, which have you heard anything about this, this show at all on Twitter or anything? A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. I've been evangelizing it, sharing it with as many people as possible. It, it's wonderful. The first season just came out on Netflix a couple of weeks ago. I binged the entire series in the season in one day. I, I couldn't get enough of it. Main reason is a big reason is because of the actors in this, but also it's it's one of my favorite soundtracks of all time for a TV show. It, it's just incomparably good. Uh, Ezra Furman did a lot of original music here. And here's how obsessed I am with this soundtrack. I check almost every single day to see when the official soundtrack is coming out because you cannot listen to some of these original songs on anywhere yet. And so I'm, I'm eagerly anticipating the availability of that. So the show is a British comedy slash drama. It was created by Lori Nunn, who I wasn't familiar with going into this. I'm not sure what else that she's done, but there are some really familiar faces. Gillian Anderson uh, plays a sex therapist, the mother of our main character, uh, Gillian Anderson, of course, from the X-Files. And our main character is Asa Butterfield. Uh, he was in Ender's Game. I think at one point he was going to be, he was one. He was on the short list to be the next Spider-Man, uh, but Tom Holland beat him out. And we also have Emma Mackey, who's a newcomer. Like everybody else in this show is like a relative newcomer to TV. Emma Mackey, Nakote Gatwa, Connor Swindellis, Keter Williams Sterling. The very wonderful actors I've never seen before, but who are just really good in this. The show is about uh, a very awkward guy in high school, the Asa Butterfield character. His mom is a th- sex therapist. And he he's so sexually blocked that he cannot even masturbate. Uh, he has he has difficulty just allowing himself to like tap into that part of himself. And 
at the same time, because of his family's psychology background, he's very wise about sex. And over a series of events, uh, this girl may played by Emma Mackey, who he has a huge crush on convinces him to be a sex therapist for his fellow high school students. So he goes around and like helps his, you know, the people in his school sort of deal with their own sexual problems. And it's a very interesting and very original take on high school sex problems because like when you watch it, you sort of get this idea of like, oh no, it's another kind of like American pie. You know, he just, this virgin's going to get laid is like the premise or whatever. And that really isn't what the show is. The show is a much more personal look at what teens are actually going through in a lot of situations with their sexuality and just sorting through that without adults around. It's it's a great show. Again, great soundtrack that really like brings it all to life. Very addictive. It's it's a it's low quality in some ways probably. Uh, the writing isn't always that strong, but there are a couple of highlight episodes. I know we talked about this before, but uh, I think that I think that you mentioned you had heard about an episode in particular involving one of the main characters who is openly gay and he has an episode or a couple of episodes where his arc is just devastating, absolutely devastating and incredibly written. And it doesn't, it almost just feels like it's in a, a totally different show. So really worth checking out on the whole. I, I'm glad I, I took a chance on it. I, I watched it because I just finished you the first season of that. And I was just like, oh, I want to watch another show. I want to see something else. And they had just come out with this one as well. And I don't know. It's been a it's been a solid month, Will Ashton, for shows diving into you know these these whippersnappers, you know these youngins. Mm. But um, that's sex education. Yes. You should you should check it out. Well, I think you would get a kick out of it. All right. It's only eight episodes, so it's a pretty easy oh, wow. binge. And yeah, again, soundtrack alone is worth giving this one a shot. Um, I don't usually grade TV shows, so don't really have a grade, just a solid recommend. My other show that I wanted to bring up was Young Justice Outsiders. And uh, I know when, when we, we talked about this briefly, Will, you thought I was talking about Serenity, the origin of story course. for the Tuna Justice. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Young Justice is an animated superhero show. This is the third season and what's been a very tumultuous show, I mean, the, the first season of Young Justice, this is DC Comics, by the way. So it's like the DC universe, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, but it really focuses in on the younger members, the teenage superheroes and sidekicks who are more of a covert group, uh, like super spies, that kind of thing. And they work in tandem with the Justice League. The first season of this came out nine years ago. So it's it's something that's been around for a while, but there was a huge gap in between. There was a, a mid-sized gap between the first and second season. The show was canceled in 2013 because the toy sales just weren't doing it, and that that was just awful. I remember we were we were basically protesting in the streets because I, I remember when the second season of Young Justice, Justice ended, we were so ready f- to see what happened next, and then it just sort of went away. This was a Cartoon Network show. And then at one point, I think because it was doing so well on Netflix, because they put the whole thing on there, Warner Brothers decided to put it, put a third season, so renew it, and put the whole thing into a DC Universe streaming show. So have you heard about this this new streaming service, DC Universe, Will? I don't think so, no. It, it's, a, it's a streaming service that just has DC content. Um, so I, I checked it out because I wanted to see Young Justice. 
And the third season, they're they're doing t- both halves separately. So it's it's interesting because the first thirteen episodes are now all on the service. They but they did three episodes a week. So I just finished the first half. The next half of the second se- or third season is going to be coming out six months from now. So the, the it's going to be 26 episodes total, but it was a very interesting release thing because it wasn't like Netflix where they just drop the whole thing, but they, they are, they were releasing because they're only like, you know, 20, 25 minutes long. So you're getting like three a week, which I thought worked out pretty well. I'm kind of, I kind of like how they did that. But the streaming service itself, like you can watch the new Titans show, like that Teen Titans live action thing. Oh which, yeah, yeah. Which I have. <laughs> oh Let really? Me tell, oh well, I'll save that for another time. I've only watched an ep- like I haven't even finished the first episode. That's how. Anyway, so it has other things. You can actually read DC Comics on there. I've been reading some of the comics like that I've I've never gotten a chance to get into. You can watch like animated shorts. You can watch some of the video on demand movies that Warner brothers has made for animation. You can watch teen Titans, like all of those seasons on, on this thing. It, it's really cool. I, I think that it's, it's only $8 a month. I don't know if I would be a long-term subscriber because the content I'm really focused in on is young justice, but with the comics in there too. And like one of my favorite things is they have like an encyclopedia for DC on the streaming service. So like, you know, after an episode would after I'd watch an episode of Young Justice within that same app, I could actually like read encyclopedia entries that would like catch me up on some of these characters and be like, oh wow, you know, I never read the Outsiders comics, which is this this is loosely based on, and it gives you some background. It's it's really fun, and they even have like forums and discussion boards, and it's like a little mini Reddit on the streaming service, and people are talking about the new episodes. They have something called DC Daily where it's like their own news show, and they talk about the things that are releasing. It's really cool. I, I think the show itself is pretty solid. It's more Young Justice. It's not better or worse. It, it really is just a continuation of the story. It, it's still, you know, a really great look at the DC universe. It, it is like it, it, unlike basically everything else happening with DC. It's it's diving into the nitty gritty of comics, and I, I still really enjoy the series. But I think the thing that stuck out to me more is this new digital platform, which is still half baked in some ways. It doesn't have enough content. I think because like the, it's still missing a lot of shows and movies. Like it doesn't have any of the DC EU movies, for example, it doesn't have a lot. Cause like the rights are all over the place. So it's hard to make that happen, but it doesn't have, you know, it, um, uh, the, uh, what I'm blinking. Oh yeah. The, uh, the CW shows, like it doesn't have like the flash or arrow, anything like that. And again, kind of a, a tricky hill to climb, but for the things that it does have, it, it is a really interesting streaming service to get into if you're a DC fanatic, or even if you just want to watch Young Justice, it's it's worth the subscription. You know, Even if it's just temporary, you just have a subscription for a little while, I think that it's worth checking out. But I know, Will, you're not the biggest DC fan I personally know, so I doubt what? I doubt it's a, a proposition for you that sounds worth the, the eight bucks. I mean, I like DC, yeah. But do you but, like it yeah, that I mean, much? <laughs> maybe not that much, but yeah, I do like DC. I mean, don't don't make me sound like I'm not a DC fan. I'm not a DC hater by any means. Right, right. I know you you like Batman versus Superman more than most people. So there you mm-hmm. go. Uh, Batman the animated yeah. series is on this, which is pretty cool. Uh, Mask of the Phantasm. I'm just kind of remembering what's on there. Um, there's oh, good yeah, stuff. Okay. 
there's good stuff. And especially things that I think that even if you're not a big fan of like the newest stuff that DC is doing, you can get a lot out of this, but that is Young Justice Outsiders. If you want to binge the first 13 episodes, you can now. Uh, I recommend it. It's a cool streaming service. And it, I hope that other streaming services start to do things like this, where they just do more besides like what Netflix has been doing for like 10 years, right? Like it's time to sort of up their game. Like if you're going to do yeah. a streaming service at this point, you really got to add something to it, you know, like make it have so, that sort of surprise factor that this has, because it was like a surprise thing. I was like, Oh wow, this is like a cool thing that I wouldn't have thought that I wanted. Right. And no other streaming mm-hmm. service is really doing that anymore. Not since like Amazon had like the x-ray features that were, you know, that's kind of neat. So no, yeah, I agree. You got to step up their game and it sounds like they're doing a little bit more. So sounds exciting. All right, let's let's finish out the show with some Oscar talk. The Oscar okay. nominees came out, were revealed earlier this week. So we now know what the, the ceremony itself is going to be on February 24th. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to do something a little bit more low-key for the Oscars probably this year, Will. Okay. Just, I'm going to have a very chaotic month, but uh, the Oscars, I love them. I, th- I think they're so much fun as a movie mm-hmm. fan. I think you, you have to avoid taking them too seriously, but even as we say that, I don't know, I just end up taking them seriously anyway. But we're going to briefly go over some of the categories. We're not going to do a deep dive by any means, just sort of our general thoughts on what was picked for some of the biggest categories. And we'll talk more about the Oscars after the ceremony and the wins and everything like that. I know last year we did like a full-on like predictions sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a whole episode of it, but we did kind of dive into, oh, what do you think is going to win Best Picture? I'm a little less interested in that this year, to be totally honest with you. Like, yeah. I think it's... I think the general conversation around the Oscars themselves is more interesting to me this year. I don't know what you think, but I guess we can just get into it. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, so a preamble, uh, there, there definitely has been some backlash to a lot of the films that were overlooked this year. And I have some general takeaways, but let's get into the nominations. So the two films with the most nominations are The Favorite and Roma. They both got nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actress, and Best Original Screenplay, actually. Uh, One thing that the favorite got over Roma, though, was Best Cinematography, which I found very strange. Wait, Uh, Roma? I'm sorry. No, Roma did get cinematography. I'm sorry. Okay, I was was thinking of production design. Roma got Best Production Design, but the favorite didn't. So, Oh, that's weird. Oh, wait, no, I'm, I'm wrong about that too. They both got oh, best okay. production design. I, I keep mixing okay. them up for some reason. They, they got a lot of the same awards is what I'm trying to say, uh, nomination-wise. Sure. That said, uh, I think the big one is best picture, and I think these two are the front runners. Would you agree with that for best picture? Uh, which one, the favorite and Roma? Yeah. I don't know, because it feels like there are like four front runners at the moment. Those are certainly two of them. Um, but I also wouldn't discount Green Book or, as much as I hate to admit it, um, Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, just because, like, I mean, they, they did get uh, quite a few uh, wins. I know um, mm-hmm. the PGA picked uh, Green Book, so that, that usually indicates what wins Best Picture, which is extremely concerning, but I, I can't discredit it. I mean, if that's going to win, I mean, who knows? Yeah, I I don't know. I'm I'm a little bit less pessimistic. I I don't see the Academy as it stands going for Green Book on this one. So the other nominations include Black Panther, Black Klansman, like you said, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Roma, Green Book, but then also A Star Is Born and Vice. 
And the funny thing about this is that the only one of these, so you and I only had one film in our top 10 each that was nominated mm-hmm. for Best Picture. For me, it was Roma. And for you, it was A Star is Born. So very interesting how that turned out. Yeah, that was a, that was a front runner back in October or so. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know what happened, but I mean, yeah, it seems like it's going to be lucky if it gets a Oscar, maybe for Sam Elliott, if that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think that the two films that are, or I would say there are three films that should be on this list that I'm very, very disappointed that the Academy basically gave little or no attention to. The first is Eighth Grade, which it gave no attention to whatsoever. Yeah, nothing. Absolutely robbed. I think original screenplay, score, pick best picture, best actress. Though it should have at least been nominated for some of those. I don't know about best director necessarily, but it was weird that Eighth Grade got nothing. But it's even crazier that if Bill Street could talk and First Man got barely anything. It very very strange. Uh, I know that Bill Street got three nominations, Best Supporting Actress, which I hope it wins, Adapted Screenplay, which I hope it wins, and Best Score, which it better win. I really think that all three of its nominations, it should win. And the fact that it only got three is very strange to me. And yeah. then I think First Man, uh, wh- how many nominations did it get? Like four? With that, yeah. Yeah, I, I know it got so it got nominated for visual effects, production design, and then a couple of the, I think both of the sound categories which at least it got something, I guess, but I did think it was very strange that Claire Foy didn't get a nomination for Best Supporting. Oh, she, did? I, she did not. Oh, wow. Which I thought was kind of strange, but you know, it's not that egregious because the actress in a supporting role category is kind of stacked. Although yeah, it is. Amy Adams for Vice, I think is the weird one. Like I think trade that out for First Man with Claire Foy and I think you have a better overall category. But the other nominations are really solid. We mentioned Regina King got nominated for Bill Street. Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz got nominated for The Favorite, which I think was absolutely deserved because Olivia Coleman from that film got nominated for Best Actress, which I think was correct. And I feel like I won this this argument in my head, Will, where you were trying to tell me that Olivia Coleman wasn't the, the leading role actress, right? Well, they're all leads, right? Isn't that how it works? I don't like, think so. In the film, I think the Academy's all, on my side, Will. Well, no, because that's how uh, Fox Searchlight uh, campaigned the film, because it's like a hierarchy thing. Yeah. Like, she plays a queen, so she's best actress. So, I mean, that's how they campaigned it. I mean, you can't, I mean, that's how they were going about it. But, um, yeah, I don't, I mean, to me, if there was a lead between the three, I'd say it's Emma Stone, because she's the one who has, like, the biggest arc throughout the narrative. But, yeah, I mean, I don't, I guess you can call Olivia Coleman the. Best, yeah. or the lead actress in those three, it's kind of a give or take. I sort of disagree. I, I think I'm. I think Olivia Coleman is probably going to win Best Actress, although it, it's tight. It could go to Glenn Close for The Wife. It could go to Yelitsa Aparicio for Roma, although that's a tougher hill because it's her first performance ever. And I think the Academy will kind of sniff at that. I, I don't think Lady Gaga or Melissa McCarthy are going to get it because I, I just don't think that those performances, you know considering the Academy's preferences, I just don't see it. I mean, Lady Gaga, maybe because they are impressed yeah. pretty easily with musical performances, but I think because Shallow is almost certainly going to get best right, original that's, song. Yeah, yeah. I forgot to mention. That's um, definitely. Forgot to mention to you, the other best supporting actress was to Marina de Tavira from Roma, which I was very surprised to see, pleasantly surprised, but. But we kind of gloss over, Will, what's kind of your takeaway on First Man and if Bill Street could talk, you know, 
both of them, I think, were in the conversation very early in the year to be best picture, you know, contenders, especially because they come from Damien Chazelle and Barry Jenkins, who went head to head in 2016. What's your takeaway? Well, I feel like the reason they didn't really get nominated is because the studios let them down. Right. For Universal, they probably put more of their efforts into Green Book as far as the campaigning is concerned. And then with um, Bale Street, that was Annapurna, as you probably right. mentioned. Um, and they, they were like, we're going all in on Vice for some reason. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they, they those studios, I'd say, are the reason why those films didn't get their full due at the Oscars this year. I think that's 100% accurate. I think that this is one of those years where studio marketing played an oversized role. It really did because I get the four-year considerations and I didn't get anything for First Man. I didn't get anything for If Bell Street Could Talk. I got a lot for Vice, for Bohemian Rhapsody, A Quiet Place, Roma. And sure enough, those are the ones that got the nominations, which is why I'm thinking that now that the nominations are set, I, I just don't see Green Book, and that was another one that I got a bunch of for your considerations. I, I just don't see Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody breaking through that. You know, I think it's, I think like last year, like if last year Shape of Water could win out over like, you know, like Darkest Hour and those kinds of films, I don't know. I, I see a brighter future for Roma, which I personally think is going to take the whole thing. And it's probably not going to get a lot of its categories. But I think at least Best Picture and Best Director, it's probably going to get those. But it, like you said, who knows? Like it, there probably are like four frontrunners. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, like last year, it's pretty open so far, which yeah. makes it exciting as far as uh, the possibilities of any of these films winning. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't really seem confirmed what's going to happen. And I do think. Uh, given the um, allegations that have continued to come out against Brian Singer, that's probably going to be a thorn in uh, Bohemian Rhapsody's side. I mean, yeah. they just lost all their GLAAD nominations because of that, but I don't think they're going to rescind the Oscar nominations. But I do think that might affect their chances of winning anything, which is certainly understandable. Very true. Very true. I think one of the worst categories, period, is actor in a leading role. I, I think it's atrocious absolutely atrocious what was picked here first of all okay you mean pick wise like not the fact that there's uh, a category devoted to male performances no 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 (laughs) no what i'm saying is for best actor i think that first of all ethan hawk ethan hawk and ryan gosling should have been nominated and ethan hawk should win (laughs) like this was ethan hawk's year i think first performed fantastic film i do not understand how this one is being overlooked, but yeah, it's between Christian Bale for Vice, Bradley Cooper for A Star Is Born, Willem Dafoe for At Eternity's Gate, Rami Malek for Bohemian Rhapsody, and Viggo Mortensen for Green Book. It's weird because um, the Academy tends to prefer, as far as why I think um, Ethan Hawke wasn't nominated, it just seems like they prefer like a showy performance. That doesn't have to mean it's like bombastic and like you know larger than life, but I, I think they need like something that's like kind of like. I don't know, more telegraphed, I guess, and suddenly like uh, um, first reformed where that performance is very intuitive and like very like inward. And I think it's fantastic. I 100% agree that he should have been nominated, but I guess they tend to overlook those performances sometimes. But then at the same time, they also gave the Oscar to uh, what's his face, uh, Casey Affleck, which is a similar kind of internal performance. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know how these mechanics work, but. It seems like his nomination went to Willem Dafoe for Attorney's Gate, which I haven't seen yet, but I heard he's very good in that. I heard he's good, but I heard the movie's not very good. And I don't I heard know, mixed things about the film. I don't know who's going to get this one. You know, bef- 
before all of the Bohemian Rhapsody, Brian Singer stuff, I would have said this is probably Rami Malek's to lose because I mean, give me a break. Viva Mortensen just stuffs pizza in his mouth the entirety of Green Book. It's not a great performance. That was impressive. It's very one note. Uh, okay, yeah, it's impressive that he ate food. I I don't know. I don't There's think he should win about- an Oscar for eating pizza, but I I, right. I will not say that. Uh- it's not impressive that he ate half a pizza in one bite. I mean, I think oh you got to give him a little bit of credit there, but no, I don't think I it's Oscar worthy. <laughs> I will not give him credit for anything. I, I just, I just think that it's such only a half baked performance. Only, only in the pizza regard do I give him credit for his performance in Gosh. Green Book. I can't say anything about Willem Dafoe either, but yeah, I, it is kind of strange that that kind of came out of nowhere because that didn't get that much Oscar marketing from what I was aware of. But and then. Maybe Bradley Cooper stands a good That's shot. I'm wondering. Yeah, for I'm wondering because, um, well, if because sometimes this happens, like if Remy Malik and Christian Bale, like they kind of like are at odds with each other, a third yeah, contender cancel each other rise out, yeah. up, right? And I think that might happen with Bradley Cooper, especially if they kind of see Cooper as like a double, because he mm-hmm. wasn't nominated for best director. But I think they are going to recognize, like, oh, well, like, your Oscar nomination for this is, like, a twofer, right? It's, like, also for Best Director, right. basically. Like, that's their logic. That's my guess, at least. So it's possible that some people be like, oh, you know, like, he not only did, gave, I would say, his best performance to date, but he knocked out of the park as a director, so they might check right. that box for him. So I don't know. And the thing about the Oscar nominations that's really weird is that, like, if you get, like, a lot of, like, second or third place picks, you can, like, work your way up to the win right, yeah. it's really weird the mechanics i don't i don't know 100 so i'm not going to claim that i know but it, it gets weird like that yeah that's why it can be a big surprise sometimes that's why like spotlight can win in 2015 right because yeah. it made so many like it was so high on so many lists that revenant and mad max were kind of canceling each other out and that one kind of split the difference but it, it makes things interesting and it, it, it's not always it always it doesn't always result in a way that i personally like but you know, I, I don't fully, I don't despise the Oscar voting system across the board, but I do think some changes could be made. We should mention it's best. Weird. It is weird. Yeah. Um, but it, it does allow for some things that might've been overlooked completely to sort of win out in the end. Um, best supporting actor. Th- this one's another kind of, it's more of a mixed bag. I don't think it's as atrocious uh, because I do think Mahershala Ali getting nominated for green book is a, is pretty palatable. Like that is a pretty, that is like the one performance in that movie that I think kind of rises above the material at the same time. I think Adam driver and Sam Elliott, neither of these were performances that really impacted me personally. Neither of these were ones where I was like, man, I can't the Oscar shoe ins, right. For even for, I know a lot of people, myself included are very confused about John David Washington, not getting anything for black Klansman, but Adam driver is very strange. I mean, it's that whole thing that I thought was going to happen with Detroit, where it's like yeah. a film that's prominently about African Americans. Like the one white actor gets a nomination. Like, what's right. up with that? Yeah, right. And which didn't happen. But then, then with Sam Elliott, this feels more like a pity nomination, where like he should have won. Elliott? Yeah, like he should have won or been nominated for other films mm-hmm. that he's done over the years. But with Star Is Born, I don't no, know. I thought he was great film. We just disagree. I, I I just don't think that that's much of a performance. I I, I think he's one of the yeah. most forgettable things about the film for me. But I guess it's, I'm just uh, on the outside of that. It's that car scene, man, when he goes to pull out and he has those red eyes. It's it hits your heartstrings. Okay. All right. All right. But uh, for me though, I'm going to go. Uh, Richard Grant is probably my choice. I think. Same he here. That's fantastic. who I would vote for. 
For yeah, sure. I thought he was fantastic. And he seems to be the most earnestly enthusiastic about it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a lot of times, like, there's, I mean, I don't want to assume anything. Like, if I'm sure when everyone gets nominated for an Oscar, like, they're very excited and stuff. But sometimes it feels a little telegraphed. But yeah. with Richard E. Grant, it feels like he's 100% like, I'm loving every minute of this. Like, I can't believe it. It's fantastic. And just, it warms my heart. It makes me feel good when he's so happy about his nominations. He was, he was one of my favorite things about Can You Ever Forgive Me, if not my favorite. And that, that was another film that I think the best director category kind of, you know, left to the side. Like, I can sort of get it not getting best picture, but Mario Heller's direction in that movie is so great. And it was, it, mm-hmm. you know, best director is just dominated by male directors and it's it's ridiculous because in 2018 so many incredibly directed films by women and a yeah. lot of where them didn't is, even get nominations anywhere yeah whereas you were never really here that you got yeah. at least a nomination right uh completely overlooked and then uh, sam rockwell and vice for best supporting role I, yeah. I just he's barely in the film it's it's a good george w impression, impression. but it's not a performance yeah. There's nothing about it that stands out. I mean, seeing that just kind of like made me just shake my head in shame for this Mm -hmm. entire enterprise. I love Sam Rockwell, but yeah, I don't think it's his like finest hour by any means. Same here. He's he's great. That's right. That's where I what I think has a lot to do with it is just they think that name recognition, and because he had a great performance last year they put their marketing into that, which is a big shame. It, it just feels like they're trying to make money off of vice, not put forward the actual best film, which that's how it's been for a long time. And it's, it's just terrible. I hate how that works. All right. And then there's animated feature film, which is a bit of a brighter spot. I think best animated has some really solid picks in here. I was happy to see Mirai, for example, from Hosoda, the great animated film. Isle of Dogs, Incredibles 2, Ralph Breaks the Internet. Not a film that I particularly loved, but I think we could have predicted that it was going to make this. But then I think Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse far and away is going to win this. I I, I just, I I would be so shocked if it didn't. I know the Academy is probably going to be like, really? You know, a lot of them probably didn't see this, but what do you think? Do you think it's going to rightfully win? It probably will win, but I'm not going to say it's a definitive because knowing the Oscars, they're... I know there's probably somebody in there who's like, are we really going to give it to a superhero movie? Right, like the yeah. nominations, the award, and they'll give it to like, I don't know, either either Dogs or uh, Incredibles 2, ironically. Right. So, um, no, I mean, it, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. it, it's, uh, it's hard to know for sure, but I, I do think it has a very strong chance of winning. Same here. I, I think you're right that it's really between that and Isle of Dogs and Incredibles 2 because Pixar, but Pixar sequels don't have the best track record for winning, especially when mm-hmm. the category is a bit more stacked. And because they're both superhero films, I think that Incredibles 2 might have an edge because it had longer a longer amount of time for a lot of these Oscar people to sort of watch the film with their families, whereas a lot of them probably didn't give Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse a chance. So that might be what, what breaks it. And then Ralph Breaks the Internet, that's kind of the dark horse here, where some, some families might have only have seen that out of all of these. And so who knows? But I think Spider-Man and Spider-Verse definitely should win. I hope it does. Cinematography is... I guess interesting. Very odd that First Man got visual effects, but it didn't get this one. Now, Cold War and Roma are interesting picks here because they're both black and white films. I think I haven't seen Cold War. You have. Do you think that's a, a good pick? Yeah, no, it's a good pick. I mean, it's a beautiful film. I mean, it looks gorgeous. So I can certainly 100% understand the nomination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Never Look Away is another one. I, I didn't see that one, but the favorite. 
the favorite, I don't think cinematography is the best thing about that. I think that film is great because of the script, the direction, the performances, but the cinematography, I know some people really like um, certain things that it does, the fisheye lens, some of the camera movements, but I think like the look of the film isn't necessarily the best thing about it. So as a whole, I wouldn't give it to this one. I think Roma is the better better winner here. A Star is Born, mm-hmm. I, it's good cinematography. It is, but Roma, I think, is the clear winner here if I were to pick. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen um, Never Look Away. I, I don't even know if I've seen a still from it to grade its cinematography, but I heard it's like three hours or something crazy like that. So I don't know if I'm going to watch it or not, yeah. but I heard it's pretty good. I heard it's all right. Um, but yeah, I would say if based on what I've seen, I'd pick Roma. I think that's probably the strongest, but I wouldn't count out Cold War, especially since it got that yeah. uh, Best Director nomination. It might, I don't know, it might sneak in the win, but Maybe. it does look like Roma's probably going to get. It didn't get a Best Direction nomination. I, I really think Roma, I think, is going to win. My biggest prediction, for now at least, is that it's going to win Cinematography, Best Picture, and Directing. And that's about it, maybe. But okay. who knows? Could could be a lot of different yeah. things. We we could get into a lot of other categories here. There's a lot. Um, documentary was did a very talk, surprising one. Did we talk about director yet, or do we? Uh, I was going to get into that one and okay. documentary, and, that, and maybe just leave it at that. The screenplay okay. ones would would take a while, but we've kind yeah. of covered the big snubs. But yeah, directing. Yeah, Black Klansman, Cold War, the favorite, Roma, Vice. I think Cold War is weird because, yeah, I didn't get the Best Picture nomination. The other ones did. But what's your pick for this one? You, you heard, I already said Roma. And I, I'm really happy to see the favorite uh, get uh, for one for Yorgos Lanthimos and Black Klansman, Spike Lee's first nomination, which is ridiculous. Yeah, that's that's surprising. I still can't believe it's his first nomination in this category. Mm-hmm. Um, is it his first time ever being nominated? I, don't, I think he's been nominated for... Uh, picture before right for as a producer yeah he's right. he's yes yes but not for direction for sure right exactly yeah it's, um as far as who win i think it's going to be alfonso Cron. i think uh as far as a directing showcase it's kind of hard to beat that yeah. one but um i don't know i mean i am happy even though i didn't love the favorite i am happy that yorgos got the nomination here i'm always happy to support him and i hope we get some more doors open for him and i'm excited to see it and like you said i mean spike lee that's fantastic that he finally got yeah. nominated but uh yeah i was surprised cooper didn't get one but like i said i think they're kind of counting his actor nomination as a director nomination so mm-hmm. i guess that's how it works maybe <laughs> yeah and i think vice is a weird one for that especially for, yeah. some, for original screenplay and editing i can't believe Vice got any of those honestly yeah i don't hate that film but it's definitely not among some of the best of the year in my opinion um uh-huh. It does seem like Cold War got the Green Book nomination, though, so that's good. Yeah, it did. I mean, certainly, it's a better directed film than Green Book, I will say, yes. Documentary. That was a weird one. That was really weird because... So I was fully expecting Free Solo. I was hoping Mining the Gap would get a nom. I kind of thought RBG would get nominated, but I thought at least Won't You Be My Neighbor, Shirkers... Um, three identical strangers, none of those got nominated, which I thought was very strange. I mean, I kind of get, you know, RBG, for example, because of the subject matter, but yeah, I, I was pretty surprised by this one. And I was very disheartened because once you be my neighbor, I thought it was a shoe in for this, but I guess at this point it's looking like free solo is probably going to win. I don't know. I think, um, mining the gap has a pretty good chance. Depending on how chance, much, yeah. uh, depending on how much Hulu puts into it. And I've heard that hail country this morning, this evening is fantastic. I heard that's yeah. really good. We haven't uh, seen that seen one. It. I haven't yeah. seen of fathers and sons either. No, I've, uh, yeah, 
But, I'll try. Uh, I still need I'll to try see, to get uh, to I still need to see Free Solo. I think that's in theaters again now, right? And IMAX it is. Screening. Yeah, I'm planning yeah. on checking that one out eventually. I, I think that uh, because I have a feeling, based on what I've heard, it's pretty good. I want to see it for myself. Yeah. You know, same same goes for some of the foreign language films. I haven't seen a few of these. I haven't seen Capernaum. Uh, we mentioned Never Look Away. I, I think that one's probably going to go maybe to Roma, Cold War, Shoplifters. But that that's a weird one too because Roma it might not get nominated. Like people might not vote for it because they're voting for it in other categories, or it might happen the other way around. But who knows? Um, that, that's a tough one. And then one of the last things I'll say is that I think original score. I, I think if Bale Street could talk, should win this one, but I'm pretty sad that First Man didn't even get nominated. I, I was pretty disappointed in that. But was was there anything else Oscar-wise that you wanted to to point out? But you know, as we wrap things up, uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, it's weird. Like I'm invested, but I don't have as much investment this year as I do mm-hmm. normally. I don't know what that is, but I feel like I'm kind of impartial to them this year. Maybe just because all the shakeups. Yeah, uh, going on with the show, and maybe just like that, they just can't seem to figure out what they want the show to be at this point. I feel less invested right now, yeah. but um, especially because yeah. Best Picture this year feels like the most popular category in some ways. Like, it feels yeah. like, yeah, with between Black Panther and Vice and Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody, feeling like those were the films that probably would have been put into that category, right? Yeah, but um, uh, yeah. I don't know. What do you think about the show? What do you think it's going to be like? That's usually the thing I care about less than anything. You but know? that's a big conversation this year, right? I, yeah, it is. We don't even know who's hosting it still, right? If anyone. It might yeah. just be another uh, uh, hostless year, which is the first time they did that since, I think, 89, when they that's had the Rob Lowe, Snow White, uh, Dancing Table thing uh, that killed that guy's career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I would say this I'll, is probably the weakest Best Picture lineup since at least 2011. So it's, it's kind of like, this feels like a pretty momentous show in general. Yeah. I mean, I would say personally, and I know you might take offenses, but I'd say Bohemian Rhapsody is the worst film to be nominated for best picture in the 21st century. Wow. So, uh, that's, uh, I think how I stand on that film, but, which is um, crazy. Cause I feel, I feel more about that with green book. So, <laughs> all right. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, man, but yeah, I feel like this is like the first time in a while, like, like I think, Every other film, even if I don't love it, like I'm like, okay, whatever. Like Bohemian Rhapsody is like the first, like I actively do not like this movie and it's not made for best picture. Yeah. So that's, yeah. It doesn't happen too often. Right. And I, you know, I was expecting Burning to show up for foreign language. That, that was one that oh, I was yeah. kind of surprised by. I, I didn't love that film, but I thought that they were going, because it was, it did qualify. Sometimes they mm-hmm. don't from South Korea, but yeah, I was, I, I thought that one was going to be a lock, but no, it's a weird. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, pretty much going to go to Roma, right? It's like, there's no, I guess uh, so. no contest, right? I, again, it, it could go either way because it just depends on how the voters want to vote for multiple things. Maybe they vote for a foreign language for Roma, and maybe that keeps Roma from winning Best Picture. You know? So, well, I mean, the last time a foreign film was nominated for Best Picture, it was a more, right? And that was that one in the foreign language category. So, it's happened before, yeah. Yeah, but it it just it really has to do with the film itself. I think Annihilation was another one I was sad to see didn't get something at least for visual effects, and I thought A Quiet Place probably should have gotten a few more technical awards. Honestly, uh, I thought that that one, you know, it it was marketed pretty heavily, but it only got one nomination for uh, sound editing. So that's kind of yeah, exactly, exactly. Although th- that said, like it 
it was an impressive feat to tell the story with sound and oh no just, for sure i just yeah. uh i i don't dispute the nomination i just think it's funny right. that it is funny uh, yeah <laughs> I, I thought I I think you're probably happy about Ballad of Buster Scruggs getting some attention, best song, and oh, then yeah, adapted screenplay. I which I didn't even realize it was adapted from. I looked this up, it was like a Jack London short. Yeah, um, one of the things was so that was kind of surprising. Yeah, that nomination for when a cowboy trades his first or when it's made me a giddy goose. That was a very exciting <laughs> moment for me. Indeed. Yeah, we, we, we could go on, but we should wrap this up. There, there's a lot to get into, and we'll, we'll talk about the Oscars in more detail uh, when the ceremony happens. But for now, that'll do it for this week's episode of Cinemaholics. Come back next week for a Sundance episode that is going to be very different from what we did last year, probably. But hopefully it's going to be a, a good coverage of that film festival. We'll give you a good outlook on some of the most interesting films coming out over the next year. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Stitcher, wherever else you love to listen to podcasts. Hang out with us on Facebook and Twitter. Our social profiles are in the show notes. And you can email us anytime at cinemahawkspodcast at gmail.com. From the internet, California, I am John Negroni. And from the internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Will Ashton. See you next time.